Welcome to episode two of this four-part Oxford Sparks podcast series, Vaccines, from Concept to Clinic. My name is Dr. Sean Elias from the Jenner Institute, University of Oxford, and in this episode I will be describing step-by-step the early stages of vaccine development, from identification of the need for a new vaccine through to proof-of-concept preclinical studies. So how do scientists select a new disease to develop a new vaccine against? For a high-profile disease such as malaria, the demand for a vaccine is obvious. Malaria causes around half a million deaths per year, most of which are young children, and has high levels of morbidity, which, in combination, contribute to a high economic burden in the developing countries where the disease is endemic. Though control measures and anti-malaria drugs do exist, drug resistance is an increasing problem. Just recently, the first malaria vaccine for humans, RTSS, has received licensure. While this has been shown to reduce severity of disease, the vaccine is still not effective enough to dramatically reduce the global burden. This vaccine also only protects against one of the four species of human malaria, Plasmodium falciparum. Additional vaccines are therefore still required. For other high-profile diseases, including influenza and tuberculosis, we have existing vaccines that actually work pretty well, yet we are still developing new vaccines for these diseases. To explain why, I will pass you over to my colleagues, Linda and Rachel, who work on influenza and tuberculosis respectively. So current seasonal influenza vaccines are designed to stimulate an immune response to the virus outer surface proteins, which are called haemagglutinin and neuraminidase. However, these viral surface proteins are subject to mutations which can affect how effective the vaccine is in protecting you from circulating influenza viruses. This is due to the fact that there are several different haemagglutinin and neuraminidase proteins which can combine to form different virus strains. These combinations are numbered, giving rise to names like H1N1 or H5N1 influenza viruses. Because of the virus's capacity to mutate, scientists have to make best-guess predictions of which influenza strains will be circulating in the coming flu season. Manufacture of influenza vaccines can take several months, during which time the circulating viruses may have changed. Here at the Jenner Institute, we are trying to generate universal influenza vaccines, which could in theory protect against a range of diverse influenza viruses. Our approach involves stimulating an immune response to influenza proteins contained within the virus, which are essential to the virus life cycle and are therefore less prone to mutations. We hope that immune responses generated against these proteins, which are called NP and M1, could reduce the severity of disease or at least reduce virus transmission. Well, TB remains a global health problem with around 8 million new cases and 1.5 million deaths every year. A vaccine against TB already exists, known as BCG, but the BCG vaccine works better in some parts of the world compared with others. Unfortunately, it's least effective in areas of greatest burden, which is predominantly sub-Saharan Africa. It's not really clear why this is, although it might be to do with previous exposure to different species of bacteria from the same family. BCG is also poorly effective against the most common form of TB disease, which is pulmonary TB. At the Jenner, we're trying to develop new vaccines that induce better immunogenicity, either as an alternative vaccine to BCG or alongside it. Co-infection with HIV increases susceptibility to TB, and so these new vaccines must also be tested in HIV-infected people, both to confirm immunogenicity and hopefully reduce this problem. 
To date, some candidates have shown early preclinical promise, but this hasn't yet transferred to success in the field, meaning that more work is required. Many other diseases, of which there are no current vaccines, fall into a list known as neglected tropical diseases. These typically thrive in poor countries, but are less widespread and have lower levels of mortality than the more well-known diseases. However, for the individuals they affect, they can be devastating. Examples include diseases caused by protozoan parasites such as Chagas and African sleeping sickness, and viral diseases such as dengue and chikungunya. In the past, there has been little funding available for these diseases, however in recent years there has been a noticeable push towards encouraging research into such diseases. Another category of disease to target with new vaccines is emerging diseases. Examples include Ebola virus, SARS and MERS. These diseases have reservoirs in animal hosts and have only recently made the transition into humans. Such diseases have sporadic outbreaks, often with high mortality rates. Often, the more deadly an outbreak, the more interest there is in developing a vaccine. The increase in research into Ebola vaccines in the last year and a half is testament to this fact. Study of these diseases is often very difficult. Different outbreak strains are often genetically variable, and preclinical testing of vaccines against such diseases often require high containment labs to house wild-type pathogens. So, once you have selected your disease of interest, how do you go about designing your vaccine? The identification and selection of candidate antigens on your pathogen of interest is key in modern vaccine development. In many of the classical vaccines, live, attenuated or killed whole pathogen is used in vaccination. This provides a whole range of antigens with which the body can identify and target the pathogen. However, in more complex diseases, pathogens have evolved mechanisms to vary these antigens or to use them to distract the immune system away from more susceptible targets. To compensate for this, we have to be highly selective of the antigens we use. For example, targeting antigens is essential for parasite survival, and, which as a result, are conserved across different strains. Such vaccines are known as subunit vaccines. Once you have selected your antigen, you must manufacture your vaccine material. For preclinical studies, this is often done on a small scale to allow screening of multiple vaccine candidates. If you are using whole pathogen material for vaccination, you must first grow up your pathogen of interest. For one candidate malaria vaccine, sporozoites, the parasite form found in mosquito salivary glands, are essentially farmed in mosquitoes, harvested, treated to ensure they are non-replicating, and then injected as a vaccine. For subunit vaccines, you must manufacture and purify the antigen, either as DNA or as a protein. Such vaccines can be manufactured in a range of systems, including yeast, bacteria, or specific mammalian cell lines. A more recent and popular approach, utilised here at the Jenner Institute, is to use viral vectored vaccines to deliver antigens. In this case, the antigen of interest is encoded in a non-replicating virus, which produces the antigen upon infection of the host following vaccination. Once you have your pathogen, vaccine antigen, or viral vector, the next step is to decide the vaccine delivery approach. Again, the classic approach has been to vaccinate with needle and syringe, either intradermally or intramuscularly. This is not always the case though. Some vaccines such as polio and rotavirus can be given orally and therefore are less invasive. It is often the case that the best route of vaccine administration is often one that closely mimics the disease's route of infection. For example, aerosol vaccines have recently been used for delivering candidate tuberculosis vaccines direct to the lungs. 
Alternatively, intravaginal vaccination has also been used preclinically for candidate HIV vaccines. Selective use of viral vectors can also mean specific cell types or regions of the body are targeted, depending on the tissue tropism of the virus. All these factors, including antigen selection and delivery, determine what type of immune response is produced in response to the vaccine. Most classical vaccines induce B cells to produce antibodies against pathogen antigens, as I described in episode 1 for the smallpox vaccine. There are actually different types of antibody, each with different functions, and a vaccine must induce the correct type to be effective. After an initial priming vaccination, our B cells typically produce early low-affinity IgM antibody, and later high-affinity IgG antibody. After a second vaccination, most B cells switch over to producing purely IgG. IgG is the only antibody that can pass from mother to child in the placenta, so its induction is essential in prenatal vaccinations. Other antibody types include IgA, which is typically found at mucosal surfaces and in breast milk, and which is protective against colonising bacteria, and IgE, which protects against parasitic worms. For some pathogens, antibodies provide little to no protection, particularly those that are intracellular, such as tuberculosis, and malaria sporozoites, which invade liver hepatocytes. Vaccines targeting these pathogens aim to induce a different arm of the immune system, known as T-cells. T-cells are classically defined by the surface markers CD8 and CD4. CD8 T-cells specialise in identifying and destroying cells infected with intracellular pathogens, and so provide an alternative route for vaccine-induced protection. In contrast, CD4 cells provide help to other cell subsets through the secretion of signaling molecules, called cytokines. Depending on the subtype of CD4, these cells may either promote or suppress CD8 T cells, or influence what type of antibody B cells produce. Preclinical studies allow us to confirm that the immune response produced against a candidate vaccine is functional, be it T-cell or B-cell inducing. In such studies, we use animal models and a series of scientific tests to measure the immune response. Such tests look at measurements such as cell numbers, what cytokine cells are producing, antibody concentrations, and neutralising properties of antibodies, to name but a few. The standard animal model for vaccine development is the mouse. Mice are easy to breed, reach maturity fast, and inbred lines allow for a standardised genetic model. Research over the years has also provided access to a series of specialised mice, including knockout mice that lack certain aspects of the immune system, or humanised mice that express certain human proteins or have human cells in place of their own. Mice can also be infected with a number of human diseases, in challenge models, which allow us to test how effective our vaccines are. Arguably, the best animal model for developing human vaccines is non-human primates. Monkeys are obviously genetically more closely related to us than mice, and so have a more similar immune system. They are also naturally infected by similar pathogens to us. This is particularly useful for studying HIV and human malaria, as both SIV, the monkey equivalent of HIV, and various monkey malarias can be used as surrogates for initial challenge studies. Now, any discussion of using animals in scientific research brings up the debate about animal rights. For those with any concerns, such animal experimentation is highly regulated, 
and all experiments must be fully justified before they can be undertaken. In challenge models, where animals are deliberately infected, there are very strict rules on how sick animals can get before they must be culled. As a scientist, I would argue that this research is both essential and necessary if we want to make progress in the development of new vaccines. Research that goes into human vaccine development is also fed back into vaccine development for animals themselves, particularly livestock. It is hard to argue against animal testing when you're actually testing bovine tuberculosis candidates, for example, in cattle themselves. I would also add that in modern science there is a drive to try and find alternative to animal research where possible. Once we have shown that a vaccine candidate has been effective in these preclinical studies, the next step is to test it in humans, and this will be the topic of the next episode. This requires a lot of time, organisation, volunteers, and most importantly, money. Thanks again for listening to Vaccines from Concept to Clinic.